Hi everyone, this is Josh from Narrate. This past weekend marked the beginning of Narrate's series, A Fill-in-the-Blank Person. Adam talked about how Jesus has affected the way we think about people's value. So here's what I want to do in this this conversation that we're starting this week. We're going to start a brand new series on Christmas Eve, much like last year. But for the next few weeks, I I don't know about you, I I love Christmas. I like the commercial aspects of Christmas and the not commercial aspects of Christmas. Like, I just like it all. It's just a, a blast. And so what I want to do, what we want to do for the next few weeks, though, is take a deep breath. And in the midst of this kind of flow that takes us up to Christmas and all the commercial aspects and all those traditions that, that are fun in their own right, I thought it would be fun to take the next few Sundays and just work our way towards Christmas by asking the question, like, who, who, who was this baby in the manger? And here, here's, for some of you might be good news, for some of those of you might be bad news, here's the catch to this conversation, is part of what I want to ask you to do in this, for these next few weeks, is to take the whole idea of whether or not Jesus was God and set it over here. Now, that's not because I don't think that's important, I, I think it's profoundly important, we talk much about that. But what I want to do for the next few weeks is actually take a long stare at the historical person of Jesus. Uh, to take in what kind of guy, what was he, what was his character, and what happened to Western culture in general, but in many ways, all culture, because of this guy's life. And so we want to take this long stare at his life and who he was, and thus we're going to kind of set this up. So my thinking is that we can work our way towards Christmas Eve by, by actually deepening our appreciation of the historic person of Jesus. I wanted to call the series a freaking amazing person. But the creative team was like, yeah, I don't know, Adam. That might not come across very good on Facebook. So we, we let you kind of fill in the blank as to how you uh, d- describe Jesus. But it's this idea of up to Jerusalem, so, uh, or up to Christmas. In, in Israel, no matter where you're at, uh, Jerusalem is up. And that, that's just a geographical reality. Whether you're north in the Galilee or east uh, along the Jordan River or south in the Negev on your way to Egypt or west splashing around in the Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem is always up. And part of that is because of their geography. There are really four regions uh, that divide the nation of Israel or that part of the planet. Uh, there's what they call the coastal plain, and that's the furthest western part. That is what intersects or you know, comes off of the, the easternmost part of the Mediterranean Sea. Biblically, that's where the Canaanites hung out. One phase in from there, one region in from there, is what scholars call the Shephelah, what the Bible calls the Shephelah. It means foothills. Most of the skirmishes that happened in the text, they actually happened in those foothills because much like our Grizzly Gulch and Davis Gulch, there's only so many corridors that lead you into the mountains. And so those were highly contested, incredibly, strategic, incredibly strategically important militarily. So that's the Shephelah. Then you have the mountains. They, they would call it the wilderness. And the wilderness threw me for a long time because when I think wilderness, I don't think mountains. But as you're picturing Israel, and I just couldn't find any good pictures for you, so we just went with this one. But the, the mountain region of Israel is every bit as rugged and awesome as are the Rocky Mountains. Uh, the difference, and the reason why I think we don't think of that is, of course, the elevation of the tops of their mountains is nowhere near ours because it's a coastal country, and so they aren't snow-capped. In fact, they're, they're, they're compl- it would be like the equivalent of our above tree line. Like, there is no life, really, on most of their mountains. It is this stark, dry, rugged land. Jerusalem lies at the top of those mountains, and of course, that's for on, for, on purpose. I mean, that, that was militarily easily to protect, and so that's why the Shephelahs, where they fought in Jerusalem, what was, if you got Jerusalem, you kind of had the area... East of the wilderness, uh, you have the, the Jordan Valley, and that includes some of the driest, 
most, uh, like, just brutal parts of the entire planet. The lowest place on the surface of the earth, the Dead Sea, is in that region. So, as you're reading the text and as you listen to Jewish people speak about God and their experiences of God, no matter where you're at, whether you're at the Galilee or the Jordan River, the Negev or the West Coast, Jerusalem is up. But the catch is, up to Jerusalem also has these deep figurative meanings for them. Up to Jerusalem captures the fact that the temple was there. That, that as you ascend to Jerusalem, you're going to be a part of something sacred. That it is this very unique place. And, and most people, normal people, could probably have afforded to, to go there once in their lifetime. Maybe it's the equivalent of you're going to your favorite stadium or to go to see your favorite band. But there's this reverential kind of idea behind the phrase up to Jerusalem. And in fact, it shows up all over in the text, even in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, which is said to have been written to a Jewish audience, uh, records this and and I think has relevance here this morning. It says, now Jesus uh, was going up to Jerusalem. Now again, a Jewish audience would have heard two different things being said there. They would have heard geographic reality. They would have also heard something of incredible importance is coming. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem. And so the text is hinting something really important is coming. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Here's the irony of the New Testament. Everybody was expecting something sacred from Jesus, at least those who were paying attention to him. Nobody was expecting a crucifixion and a resurrection. They were expecting a coronation like most kings get. Now, this idea of up to Jerusalem, it it persists even in modern Israel. If you ever have the chance to to go there, which will probably involve flying on an airplane, not rowing a boat, uh, as you fly into the the nation of Israel for for years, decades, I believe, a national law has been that when no matter what airline you're on, when you're within an hour of wheels touching the runway, national law says nobody can leave their seat. Everybody has to stay parked. Now, we do that now on international flights ourselves, uh, but, but they've been doing it for a long time. And it's not the soft kind of like, well, the passengers come on and said, did you notice there's a little turbulence? The fasten your seatbelt side is on and don't go to the bathroom. You're like, I'm going to the bathroom. I'm not going to see one for four hours. And you go anyway. It's not like that. It's just like, it's a national law. Don't do it. Pee your pants if you have to. <laughs> but the other piece of it, and I've experienced this twice, not only do people not move, they don't talk. It's not because you're on an airplane loaded full of Jewish people necessarily either. But there's this hushed, like somber, like deep reverence. Like everybody just kind of, there's this sense of like, we are within an hour of landing in Israel. And I've not experienced this, but they say if you fly El Al, which is Israel's national airline, when the tires hit the runway, the plane erupts into applause. Because there's this historic connection to, we are that much closer to going up to Jerusalem. And so that's what I want to do in this series with Christmas, is move toward it, but move toward it by, by suspending this idea of Jesus being God, and instead looking at him as a person. Now, for some of you, that's going to require giving Jesus a second chance to make a first impression, which before you deny him the opportunity, uh, could I just ask you how many times in your life you wished you had a second chance to make a first impression? Have you? Say a job interview, or a first date, or maybe the first time you met the in-laws, or a tryout that didn't go so well. I left a rehearsal one day and realized my fly was down the whole time. Like those types of instances, right? I was walking down the street the other day, and uh, it was actually this summer. It wasn't the other day. 
I don't remember the whole context. I was coming from lunch. I think I'd gone home that day. And I like reached up to scratch my head and in doing knocked my glasses off my face. They landed flat on the concrete. It was right in front of 406. I like bent down, disheveled, like what just happened? And as I was putting my glasses back on, I looked up and there was a woman coming towards me. And I must have looked like a Martian to her. There was a sense of like, who is this guy? And I remember thinking, I wish I had a second chance to make that impression. More recently, I was at a, at a store and I know none of you parents do this, but I was at a store and my kids were acting like kids and I might have threatened them with every future birthday and holiday. <laughs> you know those interactions? And I looked over and there was this mom four feet away. And if looks could kill, I'm not here today. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, I hope she doesn't go to narrate. Because <laughs> that would not be... Even my wife noticed like, oh yeah, she was not... And she shouldn't have been. I was a jerk, but... Some of you need to give Jesus a chance to make a second impression. Uh, maybe you were in a season of life where you couldn't hear it, and you retain it as toxic. Maybe you have this toxic memory of a person, an experience you had. You went through a divorce, and things were said to you that you don't necessarily hold fondly. You have this moment in life. Maybe you were taken advantage of by somebody who also proclaimed the name of Jesus. For you, I'm just going to challenge you. Would you please just... Think afresh and anew about him as a person. And for those of you who that's not a challenge, like some of you are like, yeah, I'm, I'm in. Like, I believe it all. We're, we're, we're good. I think actually the challenge for you the next few weeks is even harder. Because it strikes me that, that as Christ-following people, and, and again, I, I would count myself among you, we're so quick to acknowledge him as God, as the crucifixion historic and the tomb empty, and those are incredibly important but in the words of Dr. Bruner, who will actually be here this summer, which that'll be fun, we also often put an S on his chest. We, we ascribe to him the nature of Superman, and in doing, commit what is literal heresy. Because the text doesn't just tell us Jesus was God. It tells us he was a human. And it strikes me that as Christ followers, and part of my challenge for you in this series, we lose sight of his historic personhood. That historians, they look at human civilization and human history and they, whether they follow Jesus or not, acknowledge that history pivoted on the life of Jesus. That the way we think about lots of things changed because of him. And so my challenge to you is going to be, yeah, yeah, I know you believe he's God. Do, do you, you believe he's God? Do you also understand he was the greatest human intellect who's ever lived? Whose understanding of human ethics far surpasses anybody else we know. And I know that's a giant claim. And that's the one that I want to try to back up for, for the next few weeks. I was coming off of Mount Helena this summer on a run and running through Reader's Village it was, I can't remember the time of year, and I don't remember what was, or I remember the time of year, I don't remember what was going on, but you know when you're kind of wrestling with something for days, and finally you're like, aha, I got it, and you kind of have it in your head, and then you arrive home 10 minutes later, and you try to tell your wife, and you sound stupid again, you, you know that, that, you're like, I should have written it down, you, you know how you do that? I actually stopped and wrote it down, because I've learned, besides that I speak for a living, and so I've got to remember some intelligent things to say every once in a while, and it was, it was this, it was, I, I was, I was never compelled by the system. It wasn't the institution. I love local church. It's not why I started following Jesus. I follow Jesus started, and it's more true today than it was 18 years ago, 20 years ago, because I find him to be a freaking amazing person. Like, who he was is astounding. And so before you don't take that into consideration because you're so thrown off by a past, or before you don't take that into consideration because you're so enamored with the empty tomb, 
what I want to do is, is challenge it. And this morning, what I want to talk about is the, the dignity he brought to individual people. That again, secular or not, historians will say that the way we view the value of individual people, it, it pivots around the life and times of Jesus. That, that when Jesus, you could say it this way, when Jesus' feet hit the ground, or because he was born an infant, when he exited the chute, if you know what I mean, he, he arrived in a world where people were commodities. They were absolute 100% commodities with very rare exception. Now, if you're, if you're a, a deconstructionist like most people who like narrate, your brain can quickly go to, yeah, but what about, uh, what about Christian history? What about colonial slavery? Let's just talk about that. Because if we're to be honest, if it's true that Jesus arrived in a world that, that, were, that treated people like commodities, and it's true that that pivots on him, we could also, it could easily be argued that nothing changed for, for 1,800 years, 17, 1,600 years at the very least. But here, here's where history would step into that. It is true that we've, we have done some inveri- incredibly embarrassing things as it relates to the way we treat one another. It's happened within our own nation. But here's what's important and unique. Within colonial slavery, there at least was a conversation about, well, wait a minute, aren't they people? Like, it might have not always been the slaveholders, but within the scope of Western culture, there were conversations that dealt with this idea of, wait a minute, aren't aren't they valuable because they're people? That doesn't mean that it always had lasting impact. It doesn't mean that it was always lived out, but it at least was an idea that people generally had, or at least some people had. In the world of Greek and Roman slavery, historians will say that idea didn't exist. What is so natural to you, or at least you think natural, that all people have value and we should treat people with dignity, did not happen in the world of Greece and Rome. People were 100% commodities in large part because that's what their gods celebrated. Go back and read many of the creation myths of these cultures. People were an undesirable afterthought of the gods. People had no value, especially not the masses. Maybe a few important, rich, wealthy people, but not the general populace. In this culture that Jesus was born into, and to be sure, the Jewish world wasn't altogether any different. It's part of what he took on. Slaves were commodities. And even within slavery, that there was hierarchy. There were household slaves and field slaves and slaves who worked in the salt mines. And much like the Indian caste system today, you had no hope of getting out of whichever stratosphere you were born into. Women had no rights. They couldn't choose to get married. They couldn't choose who to marry. And in most cases, their spouse was chosen for them before they even came out of the chute. Children had no value. In fact, uh, the, the general consensus is children weren't even named for weeks or months because a family had to decide whether or not they were going to keep them first. Like some of you this spring will, will go out to a shrub in your yard and you'll hack off a bunch of branches because you understand, or a rose bush, that this is how it works. You've got to get rid of some, some life in order to create more life. This is the way children were seen, purely as another branch growing on a tree that we can choose to, to keep or not keep. The point is simply this. Jesus arrived in a world where the conversation of human dignity for individuals didn't exist. Andy Stanley, who I'm indebted for for this series, and as best I can tell, he's indebted to a guy named John Ortberg who wrote a phenomenal book. Both are referenced on the notes page or the mind map. Andy Stanley says it this way. He says, when Jesus showed up, no one saw the world the way most do today. Our sense of individual dignity is learned. It's not natural. And part of the way Jesus did this was through the stories he told he told stories like the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, now in this culture, a, a Samaritan, 
Samaritans were the offspring of Babylonians and Jewish people. So when the Babylonians conquered uh, Israel and drugged the survivors back to Babylon, they forced the Jewish survivors to intermarry in order to eliminate their race, their people from the planet. So Hitler had an idea, but it wasn't a new idea. Well, the Jewish people in what is called Second Temple Judaism, which is the, the Judaism of Jesus' day because it was the Second Temple, the Jewish people saw Samaritans as cast-offs and sellouts. The thinking was that if you really loved God, or rather if your great-grandparents had really loved God, they would have killed themselves before they intermarried with a Babylonian. And thus, the Samaritans were born. They were given their own region. People weren't supposed to enter that region. They were the worst of the worst of the worst. Jesus tells a story about a man whose beat left for dead A priest walks by, a Jewish hero. A Levite walks by, a Jewish hero. And then Jesus tells the story about a Samaritan who actually serves this guy. Jesus raises the value of Samaritans by by using them as the hero of his story. He tells the stories that the trilogy of the lost things involves a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost second son. And in doing, he raises the value of a lost sheep. By, by talking about how this, this shepherd left everything and went after it, raises the value of a lost coin. Some people think that that would have been from a woman's dowry. She loses this coin. He raises the dignity of an individual coin and women by making her the hero of the story. And he raises the value of second sons. Of course, in this culture, if you could choose which babies you were going to keep, then, of course, you could also choose how you were going to delineate what you had when you were gone. And second sons... They had no value, especially second sons who decided to be Raiders fans and move to California. (laughs) And so the idea was this son who took his inheritance and moved to the coast, who went and lived in a Greek town and lived a Greek lifestyle, the father was under cultural obligation to actually disown him. Jesus raised the value of of this second son by, by costing himself his own dignity and welcoming him back. There's the precious story of the widow's mite. See, in the Jewish temple, there was a large trumpet-shaped thing. That's where you brought your financial offering. The idea was you kind of threw it in there, and the more, more you gave, the more money you made, and therefore the more important you were to God. Jesus watched, and he watched this woman throw a single mite. Now, a mite is physically smaller than a penny. And she watched this old, widowed woman throw a mite in. And after a while, he looked at his guys, and he's like, hey, that that widow, she gave more than everybody else. And like many elementary age parents helping their kids with math, they were like, no, 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 Jesus, I don't think you understand. I don't know why 10 times 10 is 100, but it is. Just trust me. It's not more. Jesus like, no, no, it was, she gave more. And they're like, Jesus, I, I think you got a zero in math. No, no, she gave out of her poverty. And in doing, he, he messed with all kinds of things. See, the thinking was, if you were a widow, that was because God was punishing you. If you were poor, That was because you were a part of those cast-offs that the gods intended to keep poor. Jesus raises the value of this woman. But he doesn't just do it through his stories. And here's going to be my challenge, lest you fall asleep or start changing your fantasy football team for the last few minutes. Here's my challenge to you. is, Is at some point this week, maybe even every day this week, And if you're too embarrassed to read the Bible, download the app. Nobody will know. Besides that, you'll be in the bathroom anyway, so nobody will actually know what you're doing. Download the Bible app, pick one of the Gospels, and read it methodically, and pay attention to the way Jesus slows down, pauses, and gives value to individual people. Over and over and over, Jesus raises the value of people that everyone else missed. There's the story, uh, the interaction, the exchange he had with the Samaritan woman. 
You see, Jesus had a, a particular passion for, for the Samaritan people, perhaps because they were the ultimate example of worthless in his culture. People weren't supposed to, this is what we would call the West Bank today, by the way, really the same region. Jews weren't supposed to enter it. It was dangerous. Besides that, it was dirty. And, and, and Jesus took his guys through it. It was the most direct route to where he was going. They got near a town. I think it was Sychar. He sent the guys in to get a sandwich. He stuck around. There was a well. There was a woman at the well. He started interacting with her, found out that she'd been divorced, I think it's four times. By the way, women had no opportunity to divorce a man, so there's its own social comedy. She didn't choose to get divorced four times. That just happens. There's an exchange about the fact that maybe she's in a living now, that she's doing things sexually that, that no one celebrates, but she has to eat. And look at what happens when the disciples return. Uh, to me, the, the honesty of this leads credence to its historical nature. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Jesus raises the value of this woman. You're not supposed to talk to Samaritans, let alone women. I mean, the two together, no way you would do that. There's the interaction he had with the centurion. Just in case you're looking for Halloween costume ideas, I thought... (laughs) I would put that one out there for you. Scott, it kind of looks like you. He's, you guys kind of have similar. So the centurion, who's a Roman, this is the occupying force of Israel. They're waiting for the military Messiah who will come get rid of these guys. He approaches Jesus and says, hey, would you heal my servant? And not only does Jesus engage in conversation with the centurion, he heals a servant, two people who don't have value. There's Jesus' interactions with children. There are these instances in the text, uh, in, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke for sure, where, where all of a sudden Jesus is hanging out and, and these kids come by with their parents and they ditch their parents and it's like they run to Jesus and, and, and they're just kind of glomming onto Jesus and his disciples are like, get out of here, get away from Jesus. And there's a sense of like, who are these disciples that are chasing kids away? No, 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 that wasn't foreign, that was normal. The value that you place on kids, that we place on kids, that didn't always happen. Jesus is the one that went like, wait a minute. These two are made in God's image. I've been in some of these Greek cities. They call it the Decapolis. These Greek cities, there's 10 of them in and around the area of Jerusalem. I've been in a bathroom where it was described to us that in this public bathhouse, there would have been about 20 toilets and showers and saunas and all this stuff. And they described to us how also sprinkled throughout the complex would have been any number of orphan boys and girls who were available to your whatever pleasure you wanted. And it wasn't a scandal, that was life. And so these kids come to Jesus and he's like, no, 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 don't shoo them away. They are precious. That pivots on the life of Jesus. There's his interactions with tax collectors. I mean, in this culture, there's sinners and tax collectors. Even the sinners didn't want to hang out with tax collectors. In many cases, they were Jewish people who bid on the right to collect taxes and they could take however much they wanted. They had to pay their bid and they got to keep the difference. They were hated. Jesus walked up to a guy named Levi who was a tax collector and said, hey, Levi, we're gonna go have dinner at your house and whoever else wants to come invite them, we'll hang out. He says to a short little guy named Zacchaeus, you can't play basketball, so good job getting a job as a tax collector. Let's go to your house. Over and over again, we see this. You know, you know what might be the greatest evidence that Jesus raised the value of individual people? He even healed a mother-in-law. <laughs> I know that's kind of mean, but when there's low-hanging fruit, you've got to take it. <laughs> he, he, healed, he, he healed the mentally ill. Even by today's standards, his interactions with the mentally ill give them far more, gave them far more dignity than is often given today. He interacted with convicts and raised the value of convicts. 
In fact, near the end of his own life while hanging from his own cross, he had the, and this is what you'll see in the text if you'll do this, is these little words like saw, noticed, heard. Jesus, while going through the most excruciating kind of death humanity has ever invented, recognized a guy next to him who was going through the same thing and gave him some attention, even some assurance that God loved him and was with him. And then there's his interaction with the sinful woman. And I'd like to park on this one for just a moment as a type, really, of these many instances that we see in Jesus' life. Now, a little bit of cultural context here. Jesus, uh, he's in a village where where a man invites him to to dinner. It's very much kind of a first impression kind of invitation. This guy knows enough about Jesus to not like him, but apparently wants to also give him his own hearing. And in this culture, when you invite someone over for dinner, you're not inviting them into your house because it's messy. You keep them outside. Rather, uh, people don't eat indoors, especially in the northern Galilee. They, they, would have, they, w- they would have had rooms to sleep in, and then they would have had some kind of a stone wall around their complex, their courtyard. That's where they would have hung out. Now, they didn't have tables and chairs because, frankly, uh, wood wasn't all that readily available. Many scholars would say when it says that Jesus was a tecton, that's the Greek word, he was a stonemason, not a carpenter, because there wasn't a lot of lumber lying around. They laid on the floor. So it's think, think backpacking. And you know how it happens, like you're on your elbow, you're leaning forward, you're wishing that you would have also brought a camping chair. Like there's this uncomfortable nature to it. So they're on the ground, they're eating, they're exchanging. The other thing that happens is, is much like our political system and the idea of open caucuses, that was the system that existed for, for Israel at the time. That, that in these communities, when an important religious person was interviewing another one, the community would have been invited to come stand around and listen in on the interaction to pay attention to, to what actual ideas are being exchanged. So, so there's some context. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with them, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So not lazy boy, like my tailbone hurts, so I've picked a different posture. A woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Again, pretty normal. And in fact, uh, what, what we're going to see here is, uh, is a woman like, lots of offices have them. Think, think, think the woman that everybody's been with and no one really respects and she doesn't even respect herself. And now she's kind of caught in this trap of self-hatred and social hatred. She shows up. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, now I wish, I wish the text would answer for us, how long did that take? Because we read it and it's like, blah, 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 it all happened like that. Like they had lots of caffeine and it just happened in two minutes. How long... Did she hang out? Apparently, something about the interaction caused her to get emotive. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Some say as much as a year's salary. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. This is a reminder that when you're hanging out with Jesus, you should never think anything to yourself. Just don't do that because he'll figure out what you're thinking. And by the way, I, I don't think this is because he had an S on his chest and he had these gifts of telepathy. That's often the way that we understand that. But to me, again, that would defy, that makes for bad Christology because that would defy his humanness. What if Jesus had what we would call high emotional intelligence, high social intelligence? What if Jesus had the ability to watch this whole interaction and he saw a dude who was scowling at this woman? Jesus Jesus noticed 
in ways that, that many people who, who pay such close attention to others could do. And Jesus looks at Simon and he says, hey, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon, who's like, your first impression's long over. What you got, there's nothing you can say that's going to help me with you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus, being the master teacher, says two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? This is that like, what the, like, gotcha, right? Like, <laughs> now what do you got? And, and I love the, the pouty nature because maybe I can relate on lots of levels. Listen to Simon's, Simon replied, I suppose, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, like, I suppose. They're just like, what am I going to do but acknowledge this? And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. And then he goes on to say, then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Notice what the text said there. He turned and looked at the woman. She's not an object lesson. She's a person. Jesus turns and looks at her. don't, Don't you wish you could know the exchange? There were words said. Don't you wish you could see his eyes? If you could see how she responded to this? See, if you take me up on my challenge, you'll see these over and over. Jesus recognized her. And he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman, Simon? Like, seriously, do you see her? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. By the way, these are just cultural norms. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You know, I put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. As her great love has shown, but whoever has forgiven little, loves little. Jesus sees a woman and goes, no, no, no. She has value. I was recently re-listening to one of my favorite interviews in which John Ortberg, uh, a pastor in the Stanford area, was interviewing a guy named Dallas Willard. And I know I've talked about him much. But Dallas Willard, what makes him credible to me was he was a professor... I think for a season, the chair, I guess, I guess I don't know that for sure. He was this highly influential professor at the University of Southern California, one of the most prestigious private schools in the country. So Dallas was not only this, like, feet firmly on the ground in the world kind of thinker, but he was also a Christ follower. And John Hartberg asked him at one point uh, why he follows Jesus. And, and Dallas said, well, quite frankly, because there's nothing else on the human scene like him. And as Orberg leans in a little bit, he goes on to explain that, that, that if you're looking for an apprentice, someone to apprentice under, excuse me, if you're looking for someone to learn how to treat people, how, how, to, how to approach life, he's like, there's just quite simply not a more quality person who's ever lived. And then, and then he goes on to explain, he says, oftentimes students will learn, he's now passed, did learn that he was a Christ follower. And they'll look at him with this kind of like stupor, and they'll say, you, you follow Jesus? And he said his, his most uh, fun kind of coy response is to say, well, well, who else do you have in mind? And sometimes he'll chase that by saying, well, perhaps what you need to ask yourself is what would you need to do in order for your name to be on the back of a Volkswagen van in 2,000 years? And then John says, okay, but Dallas, if Jesus is taken away from Western culture, if he's taken away from world culture, if we lose him and his impact upon people and the world and we say, the way we see the world, what do we lose? And here's what Dallas said. Go ahead to that next slide. The most important thing about Jesus is his affirmation of human worth. 
now. See, Dallas is in a long line of thinkers and historians, some follow Jesus and others don't, who say something pivoted in that first century A.D., that the way we see and treat and interact with people and the value we give them has changed dramatically. Which is what caused me to say, what if we move towards Christmas by recognizing that that baby, it wasn't just a person who died on a cross and raised from the dead three days later. Before that... He was the most remarkable human being to ever walk who who changed the way we see women and children and the mentally ill and convict and individual people that no single person can can get more credit for the dignity and value we give people. And so here's my challenge. What if, what if you were to consider him afresh and anew minus all the claims that are so hard for you to get your brain around just as a person? And for those of you who believe, what if we took his challenge that to follow him had far more to do than with what we do on Sunday? Far less to do, excuse me, with what we do on Sunday and far more to do with the way we give value to people. Because see, here's what I think, is if we agree that giving value to people is what Jesus calls us to, we'll, we'll come to our knees in our inability to do that. Which is where God with his spirit shows up and goes, oh, can I help? Can I help you with that? Let me pray, and we're going to sing a song that I think is very appropriately historical. And Lord, thanks, Lord, that thanks that you became a person, and thanks, Lord, that you weren't just you were more than just a lamb. You were more than just a sacrifice. You were you were a historical person who forever impacted the way we see people. And Jesus, my prayer is that as we, over these next couple weeks, uh, look at your historical impact upon our collective psyche, that we'd have the opportunity to consider you in new ways. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.